Well, it reminds me of back in the garage days, and we did have those days where you hope five people showed up. So I'm glad you're here. God is glorified, regardless if it's just me and Chris, and I get to preach to him, which he hears all week. So uh, we are going to continue. In Judges, we're going to, if you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 4, we are going to uh, go through the entire chapter. And so uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges is where we're at. And we're going to read it. It is a story of, uh, well, three people plus some. Deborah, Barack, not Obama, and Jael. Okay, I had to tell my daughter as we went over the story this week that it wasn't Barack Obama. She was a bit confused by it. So, verse 1, chapter 4. We're going to read straight through it and then see what God has to say to us. Verse 1 says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Haggim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. And she sent and she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, Well, if you'll go with me, I will go, but if you'll not go with me, I will not go. And she said, Well, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zenanim, which is near Kadesh. And when Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hegayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, and Barak pursued, pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. 
And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her, in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. And all God's people said, This is God's word. All right, so last week we did one verse. This week we do a bunch. And it's a story that's very confusing. You may have never heard about it before. And I think before we really get into it, I want to remind us all of how we need to actually read the Bible. And it seems like maybe foolish, but um, I think it's important not to assume. Um, many approaches, a couple different approaches to the Bible. And many approach the Bible, maybe this is you, I think wrongly. By wrongly, I mean they look at it as some kind of uh, cosmic roadmap or a guide for daily life. Um, it's almost as if it's, it's like um, we use it like Google. Like we have a question and we just kind of type it in and start flipping pages looking for the answer to that question. Um, hopefully to find a verse to affirm what we already know or tell us what to decide. in everything from maybe major decisions in our life of like who to marry to maybe minor decisions like what we should spend our money on. And so we look and look and look, and quite frankly, it's kind of an exercise in futility if you've ever tried it. Um, there is a lot of stuff that the Bible provides for us, a lot of wisdom, um, a lot of direction and information. But answering all of our questions uh, is not what the Bible is for, primarily, because that's not what the Bible is actually about. And that's really important to understand, as, especially as you approach a text like this. The Bible is not about men at all. They are not the center of the story, or the primary purpose the story is written. And the story of the Bible, and I, I will hammer this and hammer this and hammer this, hopefully as long as I preach, is about God. It's about His name, it's about His fame, it's about His glory, it's about displaying who He is. Now, the salvation of men, the redemption of men, bringing men back into the proverbial garden with, with Him in relationship, is simply the medium that God uses to reveal His awesomeness. Okay, But His awesomeness, His glory, His beauty, His majesty, His perfection, that's the point of it all. And the redemption of men is the tool He uses to kind of maximize that to the utmost degree. Now, since the Bible's primary purpose, not only purpose, but primary purpose, is not to teach us what to do, but to display God, who He is, and declare what He has done, we don't have to waste our time searching texts like Judges 4, for example, looking for the perfect three-point moral lesson to apply to our daily life, right? Because that's a lot of the reason people come to church and hear a sermon. All right, tell me how, what to do now. How should I live? What are the steps I should take now? The decisions I should make? And there's nothing wrong with that. Some texts are very kind of overt and, and, and declarative of those kind of things and prescribe very certain you know, things we should do. But 
much of the text is simply just revealing who God is. Period. And that's enough. It's enough just to go, this is God. Whoa. That's it. To declare who He is, to make much of Him, to ultimately worship Him. That is why I can always say that when we proclaim or or if the gospel is shared with people, it's fantastic that that is the tool that God has used to save people. That is the thing, the power, that, that the, the, the spoken word, preaching God's word and, and going out, that transform, awesome. But if no one is transformed when we proclaim, when I proclaim, God isn't any less glorified. God is glorified regardless of people believe or not. We proclaim it, God is glorified, it either hardens a heart or softens a heart. That's not up to us. Now, Judges 4 is going to confront us then, not with perfect lessons or, or clever little you know, steps for us to, to do or take, but it's going to f- confront us simply with a God that's big. A God that is, is too big to comprehend, too big to explain. And what we see with men, in contrast to that, is that no matter who the man is, whether they're God's chosen people or not, not a single man can escape the effects of sin. But God is so big, so huge in every sense of that word, that we see that unfaithful people and and all of their unfaithful choices, whatever that might mean, and you can imagine the darkest of choices or the most wonderful of whatever, unfaithful people and their unfaithful choices cannot ever stop a faithful God from completing His mission. Not even your choices, not someone else's choices. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how screwed up the government is, no matter what you know, darkness you put to... You, you can't stop God from completing His mission. He will get it done. Now, inexplicably, and this is where today's text, and really maybe the whole book of Judges takes us, God doesn't do that despite the unfaithful choices, he actually uses those unfaithful choices to bring about salvation. He's that big. And though he seems silent, he's always working. And though it seems like things are unexpected, he is never, ever, ever surprised. Just sit on that for a while. God is never surprised by those things that shock you. And though things feel chaotic, certainly like they did this weekend with my kids, oh, I needed a Savior, okay? Jesus and my wife, okay? Those things seem chaotic. He is always in control, and his plans always come together. Now, this is most difficult for us who have experienced great suffering, and I understand that. Or if you look out and you see great suffering happening, I understand that. But I'm not going to apologize for God. I just am here to go, this is what the Bible says. And we rest in that. Because the reality is, One of two things is going to be in control. God or you or someone else. God is either in control or he's not. And we'll sit on that. It's going to be terrifyingly wonderful. But in the book of Judges, we see that up to this point, plans have been kind of uniform the way it's played out. You have Israel sinning. You have God responding by punishing. You have Israel crying out because it hurts to be spanked by the infinite God. And then after they cry out, he responds by sending a deliverer. Usually it's one person. 
an individual that goes and saves in some miraculous way. But today's story is about three individuals. Two of them are women, which we have not seen yet, which makes everything even more confusing about exactly who is doing the delivering and what is going on, who is being raised up, who is being strengthened. Today's story, it it starts off like a bad joke in many ways, because what you have is, it's like a judge and a general and a harlot walk into a bar and you're like, what is going to happen next? Because it's strange, and it's stranger than maybe you think as we go in here. The first is a female prophet, and her name is Deborah, and she's the only one identified as a judge. And the second is a partially faithful general, but also partially unfaithful, pretty cowardly. And he is the only one who, when you go into Hebrews chapter 11, which is a very famous kind of hall of faith chapter, he's the only one listed there as being faithful. And you're like, wait a second, he was like the unfaithful one. And then you have the last individual, the third one, who is basically an unfaithful pagan who doesn't believe anything, doesn't uh, worship God, and she is the only one that actually does any judging. So you're left to go, what the snarf is God doing here? Because he's using everything reversed from what I expect and people that don't deserve it in ways that are crazy. Well, Judges 4 and Judges 5 go together. Judges 5 is a little bit of a commentary on what happens in Judges 4. And I'll just kind of take pieces of that. And tomorrow, tomorrow, next Sunday, we'll preach on Judges 5 on Mother's Day. It is a sermon that has to do with mothers, as crazy as that might be. But we'll take details of that to help us understand what's happening today. It's the song of Deborah. She writes a song and she sings it along with Barak, it looks like. They're like, you know, Sonny and Cher, I guess, singing this song about the glory of God. Now, this starts off, though, at the beginning of Judges 4 with the death of Ehud. And uh, Judges 5 tells us that new gods have come up. Ehud has died. There's new gods to go after. And so Israel begins to pursue him. But when Ehud, now Ehud is the left-handed guy, the lefty who killed the hefty, right? The guy that stabbed the fat guy back a couple chapters ago. When he was alive, Israel was faithful. He seemed to reign for some time, and he uh, helped or encouraged Israelites to be faithful. But when he died, they went right back to sin again. And sometimes we, like, we read the Old Testament and we go, are you, are you kidding me? Time and time again, they're like, faithful, unfaithful. Oh, we'll worship you, now we hate you. We will do that. It's like they're just sinning up again and again and Let's just be honest, that sounds a lot like the average individual's life. Sin and again. Sin again, right? The cycle that occurs, God's always faithful, and for the most part, we're always unfaithful. But what you see is that the Israelites prove that there is, without doubt, a sinful core to their being. That there's something wrong on the inside, not just the outside. And there's really nothing external from themselves that can fix the internal problem. And this man, Ehud, that they have kind of relate, uh, I guess, depend upon, this external thing has allowed them to be religious, and it kind of reminds you of what Jesus told about those religious hypocrites that he condemned, like, you guys love me with your lips, and you really don't love me with your hearts. And so when the external peace goes away, these guys become unfaithful again. And I was thinking a lot about that, 
And I asked a, a question this week on Facebook because I was just thinking out loud as I, um, as I did. It was the idea of, like, for Israel, at this point, Ehud was their savior. He was called the savior. He delivered them. They depended upon him. And when he's removed, suddenly like, actually, we're faithless. Because God was actually the hero, not Ehud. And they were supposed to see God in Ehud, but it looks like they only saw what's Ehud. And so I started asking myself, okay, well, everyone has a savior here. You really do. Something has given you meaning and purpose and hope and joy in your life. Something is keeping you from the hell that you've imagined there is. And I don't mean spiritually. I mean your life is hell if this happens, so you pursue whatever it is to make sure you stay away from that. And so the question is, is your Savior Jesus or someone else? And here's a great way to figure it out. Ask yourself a very simple question, and that is this. When your Savior dies... When your Savior dies, like you see Ehud dying here, does your life become more meaningful or meaningless? Because people whose saviors are their jobs, when they lose their job, when it dies, guess what happens? Their life is over. The world is falling apart. Things are crazy and they are shaken to the core and they are despairing. When your Savior is a person, and that person divorces you, or that person starts to hate you and never wants to talk to you again, or that person just hurts you, suddenly you're shaking to the core and you're despairing. When that Savior is your family, and suddenly you lose your family for some reason. Now that's not to say that any of those things don't bring sadness, don't bring pain. It's to say when that thing is removed, is that the foundation of everything? Because when my Savior dies, Jesus Christ, that makes my life more meaningful. That gives me purpose. That gives me hope. That gives me security. So ask yourself, what happens when your Savior dies? Some people have a Savior of money, religion, all kinds of things. That thing is gone. What happens? When Ehud left, they fell apart. And God punished their idolatry by selling them over to a guy named Jabin. So it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to allow this to happen. Oh, that's the consequence. No, he, he says here, I own these people, and I'm giving them to you. And you go, um, that's disturbing. Should be. The Bible is actually really disturbing when you read it. This guy reigned. He was a Canaanite king. He reigned north. The name Jabin is similar to the name Pharaoh. So he is a ruler of a a nation. It's a title. Jabin, another Jabin, was killed back in Joshua chapter 11. And it seems like a new Jabin, a new leader, new pharaoh, has risen up. The army has been organized again. And it's been organized under a guy named Sisera. And it's a substantial army. It's a powerful army. 900 chariots, strong army. That'd be like 900 tanks army. And the chariots were always things that already scared these people, that frightened these people. But more than that, Sisera is an evil, evil man. And you only know that if you read Judges 5 as well. He is a terrible man. The Bible says that he led cruelly or oppressed cruelly for 20 years. So up to this point, it says, oh, they just oppressed and, and, and you know, took over for 10 years, took over, 
He oppressed cruelly for 20 years. What does he mean by cruelly? He was just not very nice. He whipped five times instead of two. I mean, what is that? The Bible tells us in Judges 5, verse 28, not only was this guy cruel, he had a cruel mama. Okay? You go, no, no, no. He had a cruel mama, a cold-hearted, evil woman for a mom. And she produced a cold-hearted, evil son. And yet she loved her son. And the cold, cruel heart that he was. Okay? Check it out. This will be disturbing. But it's the Bible, so deal with it. Verse 28 of chapter 5. This is when Sisera has not returned home. So we know Sisera dies. I already read you the story, right? I'm not ruining it for you. Oh, spoiler alert. I already ruined it, right? Sisera dies. And his mom is sitting at the window looking. Where's Sisera? Well, she probably wouldn't look at that. She's looking at her sundial, right? Where, where is he? Why isn't he back yet? What's taking him so long? I mean, normally he wipes these people out and just returns. And she's worried. Now check out what she says. Verse 28. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera. She wailed through the lattice. <laughs> Why is this chariot so long in coming? You're like, oh, what a, what a nice mom, right? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? And her wisest princes answer. Indeed, she answers herself. So her princes say this. She says this. They all say this together. Have they not found and divided the spoil? Dash, which means this is what they would have done. A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as a spoil. Okay, oh yeah, that's stuff. No, wait. Verse 30. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Sisera is an evil Evil, cruel man. More than that, he has spent the last 20 years conquering the men of Israel and raping the women of Israel. And then pillaging all the fruit of Israel. A womb or two forever. This is his mom. Well, have they enough that time to rape everybody and you know, take all the women? And you go, oh my coldness. This man is terrible. This man is evil. And then suddenly, you begin to see why and how Israel's crying out and what they're experiencing. And God, in his perfect justice, similar to chapter 1 of Judges, where the king whom Judah conquered gets his thumbs cut off. And you're like, how mean? You're like, well, I used to have a bunch of kings under my tables with their thumbs cut off. And you go, hmm. God may be silent, but his eyes are always open. And he will exact perfect justice on those who try to mock him. And you begin to see very clearly why he raises up two women to bring down this rapist. Is what he is. Now, at the time, Israel is being led by a female. Her name is Deborah. She's a prophetess. Now, you probably have heard about prophets in the Old Testament. And prophets were um, divinely inspired Sometimes future tellers, predictors of what would happen, sometimes teachers of God's word, all the time watchmen, and they would um, kind of see what was going on and make condemnations by God on the nations. Now, most of them were men. Most of them were hated because they walk up to kings and say things like, 
yeah, God's going to kill you. And that's not really a very popular thing to tell a king. And most of them were asked to do kind of strange things at times. For example, Isaiah was asked uh, as a symbol of, of God, what he was going to do to a people and destroying them. He was told to walk around naked for a couple years, which, please God, don't make me a prophet like that, right? So there's all kinds of weird things that prophets had to do. Deborah is um, kind of like some kind of Judge Judy. She's sitting under a tree in the hills of Ephraim, and people come to her, all of Israel come to her, and she basically mediates, like a judge would, social conflicts, what's going on, makes decisions, and then occasionally, as we see here, speaks for the Lord. So the Lord will say, say this. So at this point, he hears their cries, they go to him, Barak, the leader of the army, goes to her. And it would be wrong to think that because of Israel's faithfulness, a woman is leading. Be careful with that. Next week, I'm going to talk about the glories of women in leadership. Specifically, some of the mothers that have led and some of the women that we see God using. The shame is never on, I shouldn't say never, because there are some pretty screwed up women in the Bible. But God's women, the women that he employs, the shame is never on them when they lead where they ought not. The shame is always on the men and those individuals who have abdicated that place of leadership. And so he is glorified one way or another, and sometimes that's women stepping up. In this case, Judges 5, verse 7, said when things got difficult and dark, Deborah arose as a mother in Israel. Israel and everyone needed someone at that time because they were being childish. They were being stupid. They were doing things that they ought not do. We all need, I think, in our lives... um, people to mother us, especially when we act like children. And I've had some godly women in my life, including my wife, who was um, one of the greatest amplifiers of God's will in my life. But she is not, and Deborah is not, and any good mother is not someone who just affirms everything about their child and says, well done, you know, you're so screwed up, and I think it's wonderful. Okay? What they do is affirm and lead them to God's word. And this is what Deborah does. In this role, Deborah is simply a billboard, Facebook page, a Twitter account, whatever you want to say, for God. She's just a vehicle for God to speak. She's not real creative in what she says. She only speaks God's words um, or words that point toward God. And she is, like I said, simply an amplifier for God's will, a spotlight for God's glory, a prod to get people on mission. And other than what she says, God is silent throughout the whole story, which we'll address because I think that's a huge point. Second judge is Barak. He's the commander of the army uh, of Naphtali in particular. That's where he's from. He's a warrior and the general and the hand of Israel. And speaking to Deborah, Deborah says, All right, Barak, you already know what God has said. So gather 10,000 people at this mountain and gather them from a couple other tribes and go wait for Sisera. And she says, God will draw Sisera out and then God will give him into your hand. All you got to do, Barak, is show up. That's it. Show up, God will do the rest. And what does Barak say? Now that's a prophet speaking. So she may as well said, thus says the Lord, Go. So imagine God. All right, Brock. I don't know if he sounds like, maybe he has like helium voice. Who knows? Be like, all right, Brock, go. And what does Brock 
It's like not just how he responds to Deborah. How does he respond to God? Well, um, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't. Now, while Brock's request kind of seems harmless and like, you know, maybe cowardly, which I think it is, it is without doubt unfaithful. Because think about what he says. God's word is spoken, God's word is given, and he gives a condition on his obedience to it. He says, oh, well, I'll obey what you just said if this happens. Otherwise, I'm out. You ever done that? Well, Lord, I know your word says this, and I'll do that when you, otherwise I'm not. I'll obey if you come through this way, otherwise I'm not going to obey. Man, what pride. What danger. But Deborah uh, gives in to his request, and it's not without consequence that he is given into. And whether it's because he's got bad hearing or he's just a coward, Barak, um, conditional obedience means that his enemy now is going to be defeated by a woman. Now, that would have been incredibly shameful for a general. First of all, he said, I'm looking at this guy, I'm a little scared. He's like, all right, you're going to go and you're going to win, but a woman is going to take out this incredible warrior that you, Mr. Warrior, couldn't do. So for Barak, he's going to fight and not get the victory. He's going to fight, and the credit's going to go to this woman who would be considered weak and certainly not worthy of taking down a big general. But I think it's interesting that even though he is told that you're going to fight and that this weak person, this woman, is going to get credit for the victory, he still goes into battle. He still ultimately goes into battle. Maybe that's why, ultimately, He's remembered uh, in the book of faith, in Hebrews 11, or chapter of faith. He rallies all the tribes, gathers 10,000 people there, which is really just a big number. And God, as promised, draws out Sisera, sees that he's there, he's like, all right, let's go, grabs his 900 chariots, rallies the tanks, and as promised, Sisera battles, and God conquers what appears to be an unconquerable army, and he uses weather to do it. If you read in Judges chapter 5, verse 20, it basically says there's a huge rainstorm, which would have been made it very difficult in the area they were fighting for the chariots. So the chariots end up getting basically uh, removed as a military advantage, and every single man is killed by Sisera, minus one. Killed by Barak, minus one, and that is Sisera. Sisera jumps out of his chariot, because it ain't moving, and he starts running. Running north. And if you ever look at the map of where the battle is and where Kadesh is, where he starts to head to, it's not like a 5K. It's a long way. The guy's probably got some kind of military garb. I saw some of the old pictures they paint back in the you know, Renaissance times, and he's like in armor. I'm like I don't know if he was in armor, but they're running, and he goes to a family that he believes is an ally in the north. And strangely, the man named Heber is not home, but his wife, Yael, or Jael, is. And they seem to know each other quite well. Heber is a Kenite, 
Othniel, who was the first judge, is also a Kenite. And the Kenites, at least most of them, joined to the tribe of Judah. Back in, I think, Numbers 11, Moses is talking to his father-in-law, and he invites him to join. And it seems like this guy, Heber, which it said in verse 11, he had separated from the Kenites, which means he had separated from Israel, and he had gone north and not along with everyone else. And in the process of doing that, he went and made a treaty with the enemy. The Canaanite king in this case. So from what we can tell about Heber and his family, they are not some faithful tribe of Yahweh up in the north somewhere. They are people that said, I want nothing to do with it, and moved on and made a treaty with God's enemies, whom he said not to. Now, what happens next is both disturbing and confusing. You read different scholars, you go back in the old uh, Jewish Talmud, where they have commentary about what happens, they disagree, but it seems like there's two ways to approach what happens here. One takes a little more depth into the Hebrew, and one is just kind of what traditionally evangelical churches have accepted because it just is cleaner. One is that Sisera fled to this family, Heber and his wife, and begged him to help because they knew her and she helped, and you can see how she deceived, and that's that. The second is that Sisera laid with Jael in the biblical sense, and historically, the reputation that this woman has in Jewish history is not real positive, we'll say. Although there's a positive affirmation of her in Judges 5. But he goes and he does much more than just hide with her. But regardless, we know here that Jael knows Sisera. And my guess is this. She is not a believer in Yahweh. Doesn't seem like. But she certainly is familiar with the kind of person that Sisera is. And if she is any kind of woman who is not his mom, she despises him. He's an evil man. Husband's not home. Hmm. So she comes out of the tent and she invites him in and says, Turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And simply on a, on a basic Middle Eastern level, a woman, a married woman, inviting a man into her tent would have been on the level of adultery right there. But perhaps they're just friends. So feeling safe, a frightened sister enters the tent and Jael covers him, which the Hebrew is all whacked out there. Asks her for water, but Jael gives, her, uh, gives him milk, which is probably more like this sour yogurt, which is kind of weird. But I mean, if you've ever had a full stomach after an exhausting day, it just makes you a little more tired. She covers him again. Sisera then tells her to stand, watch at the door, and lie to anyone who asks if he's in there. And exhausted from all kinds of activity, whatever that might be, belly full, Sisera falls asleep. And as he is sleeping, Jael is able to somehow get close enough to him to drive a peg, a wooden peg, She'd put up the tent many times, so she was very gifted with a hammer and a peg, and drives it, says temple, it actually can be mouth or face, 
drives it into his temple, through the other side, or through the other side, to the ground. To make sure that he is dead. He crushes, she crushes her head, and Judges 5 says he sank between her feet. Which means she was very close to him, perhaps cuddling him, in order to lure him, much like Ehud had done. Sister dies without a fight of the, by the hand of a woman who was the wife of an ally. And through her, whether faithful or not, we see God's judgment. And it's not only the ultimate disgrace because a warrior is killed by a woman, it's the purest justice for a violent, cruel abuser who was killed by someone, or at least like someone who he had abused. God's not mocked, and God always gets it done. And you look at the story and you go, what the snarf are we supposed to learn from this? Right? This is a crazy, confusing, weird story. Old Testament, let's read it, be grossed out, and move forward because I don't get it. Au contraire, right? There are no, I think, simple moral lessons, no, no clever little cliches, no simple applications. There's simply this, one profound truth about one profound God. And what we see is that from a faithful woman under a tree, through the cowardice of a general, to the seductive woman with a tent peg, all these pieces moving around, God proves that he is in control of every minute detail, writing the story to maximize his glory while saving his people. He is in control of every detail. And I don't mean that he's simply in control like some kind of juggler just trying to maintain and and catch things if things fall apart. If everything goes wrong, well, he's there to catch it and make it okay. No, no, no. Don't misunderstand. He is in control in this sense. In the sense that he is moving the pieces around over many years. Ugly pieces, faithful pieces, dirty pieces, clean pieces, faithful pieces. He is moving all these pieces around like an all-knowing, perfectly good, wise chess master who thinks an infinite number of moves ahead to ensure that everything goes exactly right according to his purpose. Now that's a big thought. If you've ever played chess, chess is a game that teaches consequences. It's a game that you have to think Many moves ahead, and some of the chess masters can think 20, 30, tons of moves ahead. Possible ways, all these things. Now we're talking about the infinite God. The all-powerful, almighty, all-wise, all-knowing God. And to some, that is terrifying to imagine God governing everything. But let me tell you what is even more terrifying. God not. God not governing everything is way more terrifying to me than God ensuring everything goes right according to His purpose and His control. We see God uses every individual who ever lives, believer or not, 
whether that person is a faithful disciple, whether they're a partially faithful believer, whether they're unfaithful pagan, they are simply tools for him to accomplish his mission. Yes, even Sisera. Even Sisera. And I can almost be okay with that, right? I can almost like step back and go, well, okay. I'm okay with a God that big, I think. The thing that is difficult for me personally is I don't like it when God is silent. Like when God is uh, in the midst of chaos not saying anything. Because in this text, you don't see... I don't do well with silences. I don't do well when God doesn't... When he drops down the curtain and the, the clouds are there and you're like, Ooh, okay. I know you're in control, but I just want to see it. I want to know how it works out. I want to be assured that you, you really are, because I, I can see the dots connecting. I want to know the plan. I, know, I want to know why it had to be this way. And I think for a second, we actually believe that if God told us, we go, oh, okay. I'm okay with that then, right? You're talking about the finite mind trying to comprehend the infinite. And if you can't allow God, and I say allow, it's such a like, if you can't accept that God controls and things, what that tells me is that you want to control things with your mind. If I can understand it, it's okay. Or your emotions. If I can feel okay about it, it's okay. If God's in control, there's a lot of things that are not going to feel good, and a lot of things you're not going to understand. That's kind of this thing called faith. Where you trust that God is bigger than you could possibly imagine. The text shows me, Judges 4 in particular, that even when my God is silent, which he is, except at the beginning and the end of this text, even when he is silent in the midst of it, in the midst of all the chaos, of all the battle going on, he is still and has been active in my life. He has been watching. He is listening. He is working. His wisdom is employed. His goodness and love are present. His justice is coming. And dare I say that sometimes crazy, right? Crazy. Like this is crazy. Whatever your crazy is, that crazy suffering, that crazy irritation, that crazy confusion, that crazy things are backwards, opposite of what I hoped or expected, may, dare I say, actually be a sign of God's presence and not His absence. Now that's hard. I'm not going to pretend for a second that's not hard to go, ugh. There is a sense, though. No, there's more than a sense. There's clear scripture that says that God is tirelessly weaving together what is a tapestry of people and circumstances over many years. Right? Moving up uh, uh, decades and decades and decades prior to this time. Moving up a family up to Kadesh. Knowing that that would happen. That he is weaving this thing to make this most beautiful, the most beautiful picture possible. But most of the time, what do we get to see? The backside, right? You've seen the backside of a woven tapestry. It's like, what is that? It doesn't look like anything. 
It's ugly. It's messy. The colors are like, what? The picture is never clear. But I think that we have scriptures like this to reveal to us that the hand of God is at work. And every now and then he flips it over to show us like he does in verse 23, one of the last verses, and says, oh, yeah, God's been silent. Here he is. So on that day, God, not Jael, not Barak, not Deborah, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. See, I think we need crazy scriptures like this. Stories like this because God uses them to strengthen our faith. And it's like one of those moments, and I don't, I don't have them very often, when things are going really bad, and sometimes it's many years after the, the uh, result of it. I talked to a man today right after service, and he said, you know, um, my wife had like 20 miscarriages with some number. And I looked at that, and he said, the amazing thing about that is that when I watched her in that, that's what actually brought me to faith. And you go, wow. This past week, um, Thursday, I believe it was, a good friend of mine who's a pastor over East Wenatchee, his name's Josh McPherson. Please pray for his family. You'll know why in a second. Um, they've had six pregnancies in the last seven years. And they have three children. Uh, one was just born at uh, Children's Hospital, I believe, on Thursday. And it's her second child with spina bifida. His name's Gideon. And he's doing awesome. And it's pretty amazing to know, first of all, the whole birth and what that experienced and the immediate surgery on his spine he had to have on this little child. But what's more amazing to me is the perspective of dad. This is a man who, in my view, compared to me, I go, man, that's, that's a lot. This man's a pastor. And so he doesn't get the luxury of not speaking about the situation. He's got a church watching him. And he said something really interesting. He said a lot, he's written a lot on it, and I'll actually post it on our site so you can kind of read some of the stuff he's gone through. But he said, I used to say that bad things happen and God could use them. He's like, I don't say that anymore. And what he says now may actually shock you because he actually believed God in some of the crazy bad things is right there, even orchestrating them in the midst of this broken world. Because I actually don't think, as much as difficult as pain has been, the growth that he's had as an individual, as a family, has been immeasurable and in ways it never could have taken place. And the fruit of it is immeasurable. Stuff that he will never see of another pastor in Marysville, Washington, preaching his story. And we want to look at a guy like that and go, how can you? No way, man. That's, there's no way God's like that. He's good. He doesn't do, let, allow, ordain things. And we want to judge a guy who's in it and go, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. I'm just telling you what his faith is. Same as Job's, who lost everything. And right after he lost everything, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. 
knew how to suffer and didn't blame God, but actually trusted that God was in control of everything. As crazy as it get, as reversed as what you wanted or expected to get, God was in control and that his control was good. I think we're reminded that every devastating experience, every overwhelming joy, every person you encounter, whether you like them or not, whether they're a believer or not, like, this guy is terrible. Every person, everything you hear, see, taste, touch, every irritating circumstance, every mistake you make or have made, every success you enjoy, everything you think that you control or that you think is not in your control is never outside the control of God's sovereign bigness. And that is not a truth you can just go, okay. That's a truth that is, at least for me, is just deeply disturbing, but deeply comforting. And it changes, or hopefully will change, if you can keep it on the forefront of your mind, everything you perceive, everything you see from the minorest irritations of life to the greatest devastations you might have. So we'll close with this and go, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, let me just quickly say this. The God of the Bible is bigger than anything you can explain or comprehend. He is so big that He made everything out of nothing. He is so big that He knows everything, past, present, future, and possible. Sit on that for a while. He is so big that He does the right thing at the right time in the right way, always without fail. He is so big that He is never surprised. His plans are never thwarted. His grace is never resisted. And His justice is never, ever denied. And yet, He intended to show us how big He is, right? How big He is by saving men with a crazy, backwards, unexpected, dirty, dark plan to become small. And I keep going back to this verse, and I know I've read it before, but I, it just shakes me in terms of understanding what God is actually capable of. Acts 4, verse 27. This is the first prayer that the believers are doing together after Peter has experienced the first level of persecution as they're brought before the Sadducees and said, explain yourself, stop teaching. And they leave saying, oh, we're going to obey God instead of you. And here's what they say as they're praying to God. Verse 27 of Acts, chapter 4. For truly in this city, he says, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, non-believer, Pontius Pilate, non-believer, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. People are supposed to be faithful. All these pieces working together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you really believe that? That's the most terrible thing that could have happened. And yet he says, I was working it all to that moment. That wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just a Roman cross because they didn't have a better... That moment, 
God was in control of every aspect. And the story of Jael and Sisera is the story, I believe, of Jesus and Satan. The same thing. Of Jesus and, and God's enemy. Just as God sold His people into the Canaanites. That's what He did. He sold his, gave them over to the Canaanites and then delivered them by crushing, literally, crushing the head of the leader with a wooden stake. So God gave men over to their sin, gave men over to Satan, sold His own sinless Son into the hands of the Gentiles and the Jews, and then crushed the head of Satan with a really big wooden peg. Just as He said He would in the Garden of Eden before it all began. I'll crush the head of the serpent. So the glory of the cross proves that God is bigger than any of my sin. Any of your sin. It doesn't surprise Him. He knows about it. He saw it before you even did. He is bigger than their sin. Whose? Whoever you want. Those people bringing sin and pain and suffering into your life. God's bigger than that. It's bigger than any sin that will come or has come into your life. And a deep conviction of God's authority over this, of His power to free you from this, His power to not only forgive, but to overcome these things, should inspire us like it did the Israelites to fight confidently, to fight boldly, even if it feels like everything's impossible, what feels like everything's falling apart, because it never, ever is. But there's no buts. Even if things look like they're falling apart, they never, ever are. Though God seems silent, He's always working. Though things are unexpected, He's never surprised. And though things feel chaotic which they do at times, maybe a lot of the times, and confusing, how is this going to work out? He was always in control with a view of His glory and your deliverance. And He does that not just despite our unfaithfulness, but actually through it many times. And the craziest, the craziest unfaithfulness of men will never, ever stop the faithfulness of God. In fact, I think it's proven that crazy is where He works best. And sometimes where He works exclusively. So when you come up to the table today, when you're celebrating the cross today, know that you're, again, you are participating. You are, are accepting the forgiveness of Christ. You are accepting that you have been brought into this, this church with others who have accepted the forgiveness of Christ, not declared that, hey, I'm clean, but admitted they're dirty. And you also are confessing something. You are confessing that as crazy psycho as things get, which is what the cross was the epitome of, you know that God ultimately is in control. And when we leave here, we go knowing God goes before us, having already taken care of everything. That's a very different way to enjoy life, to experience life. It's a confident way. It's a bold way to look at whatever comes your way and go, following you, God. And you're big. So I'm going to maintain my smallness. I'm not going to try to control it. I'm going to let you control it. 
That's what we pray. That's what we confess. That's what we hope. That's how we live.